your way of humble bragging to us that some podcasts on the Vox Media Podcast Network get four ads. We've had four ads on the weeds. Oh, okay. Not since I've been on. Well, I mean. That's my fault. Correlation and causation. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Matthew Iglesias here with Ezra Klein and Daryl Lind. We've got a, I don't even know if you call it a research paper. It's a law review article. I'm getting a um, lot of lot of shade <laughs> on this paper I picked this week. I think week. it's interesting. This I think isn't it, even shade. This I is think straight it, up eclipse. I think it, it, <laughs> it raises a, a good point that I remember from my 11th grade American history class, but is apparently new to law professors. That's remarkable. Um, <laughs> you learned about this in 11th grade history. We are going to be looking at a paper <laughs> that is about the ways in which uh, separation of power, separation of institutional um, branches in, in American government has been replaced by separation or sometimes non-separation of parties and how that has fucked up a lot of modes of accountability and governance, yeah, no, it's, it's which relates important. to our other topics. It's like this is like a, one of those sort of American lives like – a play in three acts. <laughs> it's an important deep issue. Um, but so we wanted to talk about Trump and Russia and Congress. There was a good in the way that playbook can be great piece last week that Jake Sherman and, and his team did there. And it, it drowns up the sentiment that Republicans on Capitol Hill, this was last week at like peak freak out about Helsinki. And Republicans on Capitol Hill were very upset not so much that Donald Trump was wrecking American foreign policy, but that journalists kept asking them questions about this, right? And, you know, Republicans to the world, what do you want us to do? Was Sherman's headline on this. And, you know, they round up some quotes from people being uncomfortable. And then he writes, but privately, senior level Republican aides and lawmakers had a second message. What the hell do you want us to do? And it goes through the sentiment, which I think Republicans did not feel for any of the time Barack Obama was president, but that as soon as Donald Trump became president, it turns out that Congress has no authority over American public policy. Well, let me, let me try to give yeah. the slightly more generous Republicans version of the playbook thing. Yeah. Right? What, what their argument is, is, look, we forced him into walk back. We've passed a bunch of sanctions on Russia and done it by such big numbers that it overcame a presidential veto threat. I think maybe they had like one or two other tiny things in there. Like the, the Mueller investigation is still going on. They've done a bunch of hearings. They did hearings. And at every hearing, they have had the unequivocal view that, yes, Russia did try to intervene in the 2016 election. So like their argument here was that they have been clear that Russia tried to intervene in 2016. They have been clear that Russia should be punished for this. They have actually executed punishments on Russia for this. So from there, like – what do you want us to do? Like, we can't control what the president does when he wanders around and, and pals around with Vladimir Putin, which I also don't think is true. I just wanted to to frame sure. frame their litany for the record. And I do think that as far as the hearings are concerned, in addition to the kind of substantive stuff on Russia, Congress and particularly the Senate has done a decent job of like they've had Chris Ray back twice since he's been confirmed and they've made sure he's asked like about the independence of the FBI. It's not like there's the kind of effort to shut down any attempts at oversight right. that you might see if they were really just running cover yeah. for the president. And, 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 and the Burr-Warner, yeah, Burr, that's the last Burr thing Warner I'll say. The Burr-Warner investigation has, I think, 
most people believe has been has been run in a serious way. Unlike obviously the House Nunes, Nunez, like right, there but, was but no But I think that's thing. important, Question. right? Yeah. House Republicans have done a lot on the Russia issue. They have been very active, extremely vigorous in undermining yes, accountability, right? That is true. Senate Republicans have done a teensy tiny bit in the other direction. So I would say on net, what House Republicans have done is greatly help Donald Trump facilitate this cover-up. And if every single Republican member of Congress had literally done nothing, right, if they had just said nothing, voted nothing, done nothing, they would have done more to constrain Donald Trump than they actually have. And to Which draw, to draw that idea out just for a second, because yeah. I, I want to I note something I think you're saying there. On the one hand, there's been very specific hearings and ideas and commentary devoted to Russia itself and Russia's activities itself. And I think in general, I don't know quite as much about how the House has run this part of it, but, but certainly in the Senate, there's been a pretty clear view on, on, on what's going on there. Republicans have spoken more or less with one voice. Russia did try to intervene, et cetera. But particularly in the House, when it comes to the actual Mueller investigation, trying to uncover the scope of what Russia did or didn't do, what connections there were between Trump world and Russia, there the overriding strategy has been to discredit Mueller and undermine the investigation and also to distract from it this sort of constant like what about her emails, what about the – FBI Strask. I always forget how Strask. But like right today, Jim Jordan did a tweet in which he said did a tweet. that he he said that the uh, FISA warrants that had been released backed up everything that was in Devin Nunes's memo. Right, and they right. just don't. Which they did not. Right, so like, and, and I also think this is important. And not only has like Nunes and Jordan and these guys been saying this kind of stuff, but they have been very aggressive, like on Fox News. Right. Because like you can say I think something Jonathan Bernstein and some others have written is, look, like in politics, talk is action, which I do think is true. But it also matters where you talk. Right. Like talk off the record to Jake Sherman about how you're doing all that you can and the president just has this irrational bee in his bonnet is a particular kind of talk. Right. And the purpose of that talk is to distance yourself from Trump while also trying to calm down the temperature in terms of actual pressure. Talk on Fox News is delivering a message to Trump's core supporters, right? And a thing you could do, like I don't think that Sean Hannity would refuse to book Paul Ryan if he said, I would like to come on and have a vigorous argument with you about Russia policy. I mean, maybe he would. I, I think but Sean Hannity completely refused to book Paul yeah, Ryan under those conditions. But, but, well, well, I mean, he would have Paul Ryan on Sure, that would be a Tucker big Tucker Carlson yeah. probably wouldn't. Yeah, I mean you, you, you could do this, right? But instead, like The Zone, if you just watch Fox, you would just see these House Republicans doing this stuff. And while Paul Ryan, because he's a sleazy liar, like doesn't personally engage in these kind of antics about the FISA warrant, like he – picks the committee chairs, you know, like he controls the floor agenda. And this is like what they are doing. Like they wake up every day and they try really hard to perpetuate this cover up. And like that's fine, right? Like it's partisan government. If Republicans want to help Donald Trump be corrupt and help the Russian government destroy American democracy, just like they want to destroy every other aspect of American democracy, like that is their right. But it really makes me mad when they, they go like whining to Axios and Politico and be like, what do you guys want us to do? Like fucking nothing. Do nothing. OK, so let us stipulate that quite possibly like 
there are hundreds of Republicans in either chamber of Congress. And like maybe the people who are talking to Jake Sherman are not Jim Jordan. Yes, right? this is a like, key point. Let, like I want to I want to just for the sake of this episode, imagine that such a Republican exists because I think it is more likely that it exists than not. And also because like. There are answers to what do you want us to do? You don't have to just throw up your hands and say, like, well, we can't do anything because other people out there are trying to undermine any attempted oversight of the president. Like, just with things we've already talked about in this episode so far, one, you could lift up the things that do underline the conclusion of the intelligence agencies, just like Jim Jordan is lifting up the like fiction that the FISA application validates the Nunes memo. You can lift up the things that do underline kind of your assessment of the case without picking fights with your colleagues. Two, you could, I don't know, Paul Ryan could stop running interference for Nunes in picking fights with the DOJ over what documents they're turning over, which is something that we know he has done. Three, like if you're a standard backbencher, you could be spending your time lifting up the Burr-Warner investigation so that even if you're a member of the House, you're like sending the message that as far as you're concerned, there is a serious congressional investigation and there is a non-serious one. Four, you could be making statements like in a congressional context, yeah, Trump's base doesn't watch what goes on on the House floor, but the White House very well might. And like they are getting signals from Congress about what they're going to get a fight from Congress on and what they're not. I think, like, that's, I think yeah. that is, I, I mean, literally, those are non-legislative things. Those are literally just like, what are the statements you could give that would help indicate to the president that there is not, in fact, widespread impunity to say whatever he thinks and contradict the findings of the intelligence agency? Yeah, and so two things to add to that. One thing that, that I do want to note is I think that Paul Ryan's defense of Devin Nunez throughout this saga has been one of the truly unforgivable dimensions of his career. I mean, I used to push back on Matt's uh, descriptions of Ryan, but Ryan has tried very, very hard in his entire public presentation to make sure he is perceived as somebody who is deeply committed to the defense of core American institutions, to, to the rule of law, that he is Speaker of the House, that he's not just sort of one more partisan, bomb-throwing Republican. And I think that he's quite, in general, successful in that portrayal because he tries to stay above things. But he is the person running a lot of this. He is a person who he could come out and say that I don't think Devin Nunez is running oversight in, in a reasonable way. And this should not be partisan. This part of it right here to not have the clown show of Devin Nunez be the House's contribution to a very, very, very serious foreign effort to undermine sabotage and otherwise change an American election that possibly has downstream effects of leverage on key members of the U.S. government, on um, U.S. government policy towards Russia. The idea that Paul Ryan, who is Mitt Romney's vice presidential candidate, Mitt Romney said Russia is our number one geopolitical threat, and this is what he has chosen to have happen in the House that he runs, I think it's awful. But the other thing I'll add that, that was not as much on your list is something that really we could be doing, we should be doing, and this is not a specific investigatory effort, this is not a specific Russia effort, is we have an incredibly unsafe, technologically rudimentary election system. And there are a lot of good ideas out there about how to fortify it. Now, neither Democrats nor Republicans in theory should want election systems to be hacked. If you're a Republican, think about you know large hacking uh, groups on the left who you may be afraid of. If you're a Democrat, think about Russia. There are good ideas out there. 
Tim Lee, who used to be at Vox uh, and is now at Ars Technica, has written a lot about the Secure Elections Act. And that, that's a pretty fascinating bill, actually, that I want to just describe for a second. But maybe before I do that, we should take a break. Stitch Fix, you guys may have heard of, this is a company that has reimagined the way that we find and buy clothes. They understand that life gets busy, so this is just like a great way to up your style game a little bit if you are somebody who is not like a shopping enthusiast or, or a fashion hound personally, right? You get a personal shopper who does the work for you. All you need to do is answer some really basic questions. Say your size, you answer a few questions about styles, a few questions about budget, uh, right from your, your computer, your smartphone, your tablet. Stylist springs into action, and it sounds like an incredibly expensive service, uh, but the actual styling fee is only $20, and then that's applied as a credit to anything that you keep. So the incentives are perfectly aligned, right? Like, they try to pick out clothes that you love, send them to you. If you love them, you keep them. If you do not love them, you send it back. You only pay for what you keep. It's really good. You are in complete control, and if you don't like selling, you need another size, uh, you just send it back. Shipping is free in both directions, so you can get your fix whenever you want or sign up to receive scheduled shipments. The choice is yours, so if they think you're going to love Stitch Fix and want to give you this special offer, you hurry to stitchfix.com slash weeds. You can get started right now. If you keep all five items in your box, you will get 25% off your entire purchase. That's stitchfix.com slash weeds, stitchfix.com slash weeds. Listening to podcasts is great, but at some point later tonight, you should really watch something. Check out Vox's new Netflix show. It is called Explained. Every episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one important topic. This week's episode is all about cricket. I watched it last night myself. It's fascinating. Cricket, if you know anything about it, you probably know that you do not understand it at all. This episode, it really helps you get it. They feature Stephen Fry uh, geeking out about his favorite sport. It explores the question of, like, how did this, like, weird, incredibly confusing, like, English gentlemen's game become this incredibly popular phenomenon with a billion fans in South Asia, explains the surprising history of the sport, how it got to be so complicated, how it has sort of evolved, and it shows how beloved this sport is, right? In America, cricket is like kind of a joke, like, haha, these weirdos with bats. But like one in seven people on earth watched a single cricket game between India and Pakistan. It's a huge phenomenon in major parts of the world. And the show also just like, it breaks down the laws of cricket. They've got laws, not rules. So you can actually understand it and like what's a test match, like what's going on, who these players are, where it all comes from. So check it all out on Netflix or go straight to netflix.com slash explained. All right. The Secure Elections Act, I think, is interesting here. It's a bipartisan bill in the Senate. It's from Senators Lankford with Klobuchar and, and Lindsey Graham and Kamala Harris and Susan Collins and Martin, Martin Heinrich, right? Yeah. Yes. Right. And what it would do is basically two things. We have a lot of paperless voting machines. And the problem with paperless voting machines is that if they are hacked, there's no effective way to audit them. So in theory, you think, oh, that's great. You know, paperless, it's a future. But if something goes wrong in a paperless voting machine, it's very hard to figure out if anything has gone wrong in a paperless voting machine. So, so one thing it would do here is basically put a bunch of money to eliminate voting machines that do not have a paper redundancy behind them. Uh, so, so that would be one good thing. But the second piece, which is important for, for making the first piece matter, is to make audits routine through throughout American elections. Think back to 2016. Right after the 2016 election, there, there was an effort. Um, I think Jill Stein was raising money for it, if mm -hmm. I'm not misremembering, to fund audits of the electoral results in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, some of the closer states where, where, where people were concerned. And that was taken, and I, I think correctly, by a lot of Republicans as you know an, an effort to delegitimize the election results, you know, to, to, to cast doubt on it. 
people right now react to the idea that an election will be audited as a implication that wrongdoing was done in the election. And so you then have this kind of secondary thing of like, can you get over the very high bar we've created for auditing an election? What this bill would do is say that all elections are audited, that it is a normal part of American election systems that we do statistically responsible post-election auditing just to make sure everything's fine. Um, it's not to cast doubt on anyone. It's just to make sure everything went the way we thought it did, that everything matches up and also then to act as a deterrent because if hackers know that everything's going to constantly be audited, well, then the 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 upside of hacking is lower because you know, you're, you're probably going to get caught. So that is a bill that like you just could have passed. You could have passed that in a pack package of other things to fortify our electoral security against cyber incursions and other things. And just that stuff hasn't been done either, right? There are real problems here we could solve, problems here that wouldn't even be about Donald Trump, and they're not solving those either. Right. I mean, I want to dig into a little bit what has kind of happened on election security because there was like earlier this year, Congress was willing to approve 380 million in like state block grants for election security. But like as a follow-up, Earlier this month, the Democrats on the House Administration Committee released what's essentially a minority report that's kind of a call for more funding along what the lines of what Ezra was talking about and that actually identifies like a couple of tiers of states that are particularly vulnerable, including literally a tier of states including Arizona, Florida, Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, New Hampshire, Tennessee, Texas, and Wisconsin, all of which, quote, may not be planning on using federal assistance to address their biggest vulnerabilities. Like, literally, they sent them the money, and now they're concerned that they they have identified problems that are not going to get fixed using that money. And that was a, you know, like, again, it was a minority report. And there were election security experts at the time extremely concerned that this kind of thing, which, you know, was drawing on a bunch of input and testimony, that that shouldn't be something that only one party is endorsing. So like even if you don't necessarily want to put the like billions of dollars toward whatever because you're a fiscal conservative or like even if you have a problem with Martin Heinrich and, you know, you're a senator and you're driven by ego and so you're not going to sign on to Martin Heinrich's bill, like there are findings that would be much more validated if they were bipartisan that are currently partisan that you could sign on to. Yes. I think, you know, another legislative mode where where you see a real opportunity here is on trade policy stuff, right, where it's not like strictly linked to the Russian election meddling issue, but a question where Donald Trump appears to be creating large divides with U.S. allies is in asserting that there is a national security risk involved in relying on European cars or Canadian aluminum, things like that. Many Republicans who have spoken on this indicate that they don't agree with this policy. So it's not even a question of like you should give something up to restrain Donald Trump on foreign policy. But they have not legislated on this, right? The the existence of a national security discretionary loophole is a law that Congress passed and Congress created. And Jeff Flake and Bob Corker have sort of talked about rolling this back. But the leadership has not like put a bill on the floor. It's possible that some Democrats might actually back Trump up in a vote like that because uh, a lot of congressional Democrats have been somewhat skeptical of trade. I think they probably wouldn't, but you could make a real go at it, you know, to say that, look, America's treaty allies are 
exempt from national security tariffs, right? That would be a way of signaling to the world that like the United States has enduring treaty commitments that have real value and real meaning and that that transcends like whatever Donald Trump happens to say on any given afternoon. I think it's pretty obvious why Republicans don't do it, which is that they don't want Trump to put them on blast and they think that the internal solidarity of their caucus would dissolve if Trump started fighting with them. Um, that's a reason, but it's not like a – it's not a good reason <laughs> like like that you put in the history books. I, I think it's a perfectly good reason. Like it, it explains what's going on there. It's a good explanation. It's not right. a good reason. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. And this also goes to the sort of most obvious thing is that Congressional Democrats have been trying forever to get Trump's uh, tax returns and other financial information disclosed and congressional Republicans keep not doing it. Um, we don't know. Like maybe whatever Trump is covering up there has nothing to do with Russia. But it's a pretty obvious sort of question to ask. And, you know, congressional Republicans, again, like it's easy to understand why – they don't want to do it, particularly because they would be picked off as individuals, right? If one person starts saying, well, you know, we should do this, then Trump is going to start attacking them. That particular person is going to be at risk. He's going to feel, well, my colleagues will probably throw me under the bus. And then you wind up, you know, this like wounded, shamed dog like Jeff Flake. All that said, like – the fact that Trump has already irrevocably destroyed the political careers of Jeff Flake and Bob Corker and like they now act not like angry right. <laughs> that Trump wrecked them and now they are going to wreck him. They are like whimpering around. Flake um, said he was going to put a hold on circuit court confirmations until he got a trade vote. Then a Supreme Court seat became vacant and Flake was like, well, you know, this isn't going to extend to the Supreme Court. And then a couple days after that, he uh, agreed to back down on his circuit court hold in exchange for a non-binding resolution. And like that's just I don't know, like he had some leverage. He considered using it and then he chose not to. Um, I don't want to say for no reason, but it's like they are all acting, even the ones who are retired, as like deeply embedded members of party networks. And like the Republican Party really wants to keep confirming circuit court judges and nobody, including guys on their way out, including guys like Lindsey Graham who've made foreign policy the center of their personal politics, like nobody wants to stand in the way of those buses. So I think this actually – brings us back to that that initial question in a in a useful way. So after Donald Trump's Helsinki meeting with Vladimir Putin and then after Donald Trump said I want Putin to come to the White House so we can hang out a little bit more in fall right before the midterm elections. In fall right before the midterm elections. So Republicans come out and they say what what would you have us do? And and I think it's like actually worth now taking this in a more specific way. What they are saying is that we also don't want Donald Trump doing this with Vladimir Putin. And they don't. They they did not like that. They were very clear about it. They 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 spoke in a clear way about it than they normally do. A couple of days later, they're like, oh, well, maybe he did mean to say wouldn't as opposed to would. But but for the moment, they didn't like it. So the question is, like, what leverage do they have to make him stop doing the thing they don't like him doing? Because the other things are not clearly things they they they, they don't like. So they want to bind his actions. And what is their leverage? Like as you just mentioned with Flake, one of the issues is that a lot of the leverage they conceptually have on him is in a way leverage 
they have on themselves, right? They want the circuit court judges approved. They want almost everything on the Trump agenda to happen with the exception of trade and with the exception of the sort of weird Russia stuff, which is not taking a legislative vehicle. Um, it's taking more of a, an interpersonal diplomatic vehicle. And so the core thing with Republicans, I think, for, for some time now has been that particularly their critics like, like us look at them and they say, you're not doing anything. You're just talking and only occasionally. And I think the answer is that they prioritize the stuff quite low. Like I, I think my sense when I when I talk to them and 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 when I read others talking to them is that if you really like shot one up with sodium pentothal and sodium pentothal really worked <laughs> and asked like how they thought this was all going, they would say that, you know, substantively the Trump administration has been a pretty huge win for them. They've gotten more than they thought they would. He's been much more aligned with them than they thought. Yeah, he himself acts in an erratic, kind of crazy, somewhat embarrassing way. But that's just not that important to them. Um, he's not pushing anything about Russia in Congress. Like, like what they wish would happen is that everybody would stop paying attention to anything Donald Trump does or says and just like watch the GOP agenda and nominations and whatever. And then it's all going fine. And I think like the ultimate answer to, to the question of like what would you have us do is like the thing they're not saying is that the things they could do would cost them more than the thing they're trying to stop actually hurts them. But here I, yeah. I, I – this is like a widely offered advantage, but it, it is not true, right? Like making Donald Trump disclose his financial records would not cost them anything. They totally disagree with that. Though, how, how can you say that? So like let's imagine that what you think is going on is true and there is something fucking terrible oh, yes, on yes, those yes. returns. Yes. Okay, but, and but, then but, but, okay, but, 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 okay, but, but, but I want to draw a distinction here, right? Because like one thing is like, oh, Matt, you want us to like give up on our conservative policy agenda to stop Donald Trump. And like, yes, I do because their conservative policy agenda is horrible, right? <laughs> like their agenda like has no merits. But setting that aside, Right. I just it's important, I think, to be clear. I think there's been a lot of bending over so far backwards to apologize for these guys that people lose sight of it. Right. Like what I am asking them to do at a minimum is to stop the active complicity in the cover up. But they engage in active complicity in the cover up, not because it like helps them confirm judges, but because it will help them win the election like they believe that Donald Trump is guilty of serious malfeasance and that it is important to them that that malfeasance not come to light. Because if the American people knew the truth about Donald Trump, they might lose some house races. So like that's not them, quote unquote, not doing anything, right? Like they are doing things like every day they get up and they, they contribute to this. And it is true. Like fundamentally, if what they said to Jake Sherman was like, fuck you, man, we but, just don't care about this. I'd say that's but, right. Well, you don't care. But we're saying something quite similar with different emotional valences. What they said to Jake Sherman was there is something we do care about. We don't like what Donald Trump is doing in Helsinki. But we don't really have something that we think can stop it. We have done the other things we think we can do that we care about and like we're not going to stop that. Now you're moving it over, right? It's like what's up on the tax returns? To your point, right? They actively don't want that because they feel the tax returns remaining secret helps them, not hurts them. And like I just think that's a – it's not sympathy or non-sympathy. It's not generosity or non-generosity. It's just like – that's what's going on. Like that's the true bottom line here. Like they they are not just like complicit in it. They've accepted it. They've signed the contract. They think it's like a positive sum deal for them. So 
the thing is that, like, it's not a contract. It's praxis, right? It's mm-hmm. a decision that they're essentially making every day. And so it, like, it behooves us to think of that to, like, maybe they think of that as a sunk cost. It's not. We are less than two years into a potentially eight-year presidency as far as, like, congressional Republicans are concerned. They're not doing anything to stop it from being an eight-year presidency. And I think you guys have correctly identified that there are two different operating definitions of what is the cost-benefit analysis of Donald Trump? And one of them is a policy one, like, I'm going to keep getting my judges confirmed. We passed tax reform last year. And the other one is the political one of the base of our party really loves him. It's not clear what my path to victory is without the base of my party. Therefore, I'd better stay on his good side. And, like, those are separate. The problem is that either of them can fail at some point over the next six-plus years. Like, if their theory is that Donald Trump is such a political genius, then, yeah, they are assuming that he's going to keep winning elections for them. But, like, that's a lot of chances that the American public has to turn against this extremely polarizing figure with a lot of big vulnerabilities that shouldn't cast aspersions on the Republican Party or Republican policy agenda in theory because there are things that didn't happen that, like, weren't the Republicans, they were Donald Trump, but that you're tying your, you know, you're tying yourself to the mast on that. And from a policy perspective, like, we are seeing that Trump thinks of himself as more independent from the Republican Party on policy as he gets more familiar with it. He's getting more aggressive on trade and tariffs than he was in his first year. You know, he's continuing to, like, go down the line on judges, but it's not that inconceivable that either the cost-benefit of judges versus, like, ruinous trade wars is going to change, or at some point he'll decide he no longer owes anything to the Federalist Society. Like, it is possible to imagine that cost-benefit calculus changing. And I do not think that Republicans are actually sitting down and asking themselves, what is the point at which the cost would overwhelm the benefit for me? And here is why. Because I think that if they are, they're not committing themselves, right? Last year, we saw some Republicans draw what they thought was a bright line. They said, if he tries to fire Rod Rosenstein, if he tries to fire Robert Mueller. They're not saying that as much anymore, partly because it's become clear that he does sometimes want to fire Rod Rosenstein. He did at one point consider firing Robert Mueller. Like, they, the only bright line they were comfortable drawing in public was one that they never thought was going to get met, and then they kind of hushed up about it. Like, in social science, there's a movement to pre-register your hypothesis, right? So that you're not just doing data mining. You're not just, like, finding what the circumstances right now are and, like, what's the most advantageous way you can spin that. You're actually saying, I have a theory about what should be going on here, and either my theory is correct or it isn't. Nobody is pre-registering their sense of Donald Trump. Nobody is saying, here are the things that make Donald Trump worthwhile for us. Here is why we are sticking with him. And then and allowing themselves to say, well, he's now failed those conditions, so now I'm turning away. They're like, they're engaging in the kind of stuff that in social science leads to like just spinning the results. And the thing is that you're never going to like look at a lot of data and say, oh, there's no correlation here whatsoever. You're gonna torture that data until you get a positive correlation, but you're just defining victory down. This is a good bridge to the paper, I think. Yes. All right. Our, our paper this week, uh, which as my co-hosts have reminded me, is a law review paper, so not a white paper. Apologies some... to all law school professors out there for, for the shade. It's just well, – I like it. Apologies to all <laughs> law professors out there for the segment we're about to engage in in which we're going to discuss a law review article despite none of us having like done oh, the law school. Oh, no. We, we, I totally disagree yeah, with that. Yeah, that's crazy. We I, do that every week. <laughs> all right. 
This paper, um, it actually was sent to me by, by a reader. Uh, it's called Separation of Parties, Not Powers. It's an 06 paper. So just think about the context of 06 by Daryl Levinson and Richard uh, Pildes. Its argument is that the U.S. government was set up to have this separation of powers. Um, You learn about this in every high school civics course. Apparently, Matt's um, had a more revisionist view of this that is clearly correct, but I never got that in in the civics courses I took. But so basically, the, the, the framers set up this separation of powers structure where accountability was supposed to be ensured because the ambition of each branch would counteract the ambition of every other branch. That basically failed like immediately. The framers did not want parties. They set up a political system expecting it to be resistant to the formation of political parties. They immediately set up political parties after they formed their political system, thus <laughs> changing the way it worked almost instantly, but never going back and reforming um, core core pieces of how the structure itself worked. And so what Levinson and, and Pildy say is that This has changed how American government works in ways that constitutional law and and even our generalized discussion about it often don't give enough credit to. So they write, as competition between the legislative and executive branches was displaced by competition between two major parties, the machine that was supposed to go of itself stopped running. And so the basic argument they make is that Rather than American um, politics being defined by constant self-perpetuating competition between branches, it's now defined by periods of cross-party cooperation across branches or um, competition when you have divided government and so the parties are competing across branches. And so this has different – ups and downs. Like one of the one of the things you have, which we're seeing right now, is that when the same party controls, particularly the the, the presidency and the Congress, but also in this case the Supreme Court, the incentives for accountability are much weakened. Because as we were just saying, conceptually, it would make a lot of sense to, to, to figure out what's on Donald Trump's tax returns. But Republicans want to win the next election. And so in that case, it very well may not. That is not how the system was supposed to work. Conversely, when you have divided government, in the system we've built, you have a lot of paralysis, you have a lot of um, gridlock, you have a lot of competition that, that, that can be in, in some ways destructive. I would actually say a weakness of this paper is in a kind of 06 context. They're much more pro things like the filibuster and, and slowing everything down because they sort of have what I think of as now this naive view that that's going to create consensus-driven legislation as opposed to total paralysis wherein the minority party realizes the best outcome is not something they like but nothing at all so that people turn on the majority party for getting nothing done. But so what they're trying to do in this is is both reconstruct a more realistic vision of how American politics actually works and then in a way that I think is a little bit less persuasive, come up with some ideas for, well, how would you reform the American political system to just say that the crucial institutions are not the branches but the parties? Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought up the filibuster thing because it's – I want to read this verbatim because it's wild to think of people saying this in 2006 given what we know has happened in the meantime – Routine use or threat of the filibuster would encourage the appointment of politically moderate judges and justices <laughs> with views closer to those of the median senator and voter than those of the median senator of the dominant party. Like, the problem with this is that it underestimates Mitch McConnell's party discipline, right? Weirdly, for a paper about parties, it's never really clear about how it imagines kind of intra-party dynamics working. And I think one of the ways in which it fails to do that is it fails to anticipate the kind of use of the minority party's ability to tank the majority party's agenda. 
as you were saying, but like that kind of does get to a bigger problem with the paper, right? Like it can only imagine a world where senators are working in their own interest individually and therefore they're going to default to their party's interests. But if a really moderate judge is getting appointed and they're in a really swingy district, then they're going to break ranks. That's not the world that we have. And so it's not super clear what their alternative account for how parties themselves decide what they're doing works. So one of the the real sort of mysteries, I think, of American politics, right, is you look at the U.S. Senate today. Right. And the median senators are Susan Collins, a veteran moderate senator from a moderately blue state who is a Republican, and Lisa Murkowski, a newer senator who lost the Republican Party nomination and then won relying primarily on the votes of Alaska's Democrats. So she's like a really like a Republican in name only in a literal kind of sense. And the two of them have – Manchin. And Joe Manchin, who's like a, a Democrat, cross-pressure Democrat on the flip side. And if you listen to what those three senators say, they articulate a very moderate policy vision, right? Like Murkowski and Collins think that Roe v. Wade should be upheld. They did not want to defund Planned Parenthood. They um, signed on to a net neutrality petition, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so one way the American government might work – is that the people who control the pivot points consistently control the policy outcomes. And they do sometimes, right? Like when Mitch McConnell like gets together and is like, we're going to do a big health care repeal bill, it turns out that the pivotal senators do control the policy outcomes. And like if you can't get Collins and Murkowski to sign on to it, you can't pass the bill. But when you go through the, the rulemaking process, like something really weird happens where it's expected that the Republican senators will confirm the Republican president's nominees, even though we all know that the nominees, both to the courts, to the lower courts, and to the executive agencies, that they reflect a much further right orthodox conservative vision, right? And this happens even though there's a bunch of appointments, right? Like it would be crazy, obviously, for Susan Collins to demand that she single-handedly control all executive branch appointments just because she's the, the pivotal person. But there's hundreds of people going through there. And you might think that like the deal would be a large chunk of the appointments have to reflect Susan Collins's views rather than Mitch McConnell's views. But the party network doesn't work like that. And, and it goes in the flip side, right? Like it was very clearly understood in the interest group and political world that part of what Obama was doing with the clean power plan at the end of his second administration was that he could get moderate Senate Democrats to vote for EPA nominees and to vote for courts who would uphold EPA rulings that those exact same senators would not vote for if it was put forward as legislation, right? So part of what you have in the interplay of the branches and partisanship is this kind of hide the ball game. Where like Claire McCaskill can say like she never voted for any cap and trade plan, but she like voted for all the people who were going to make the cap and trade plan happen. And that's a really like salient and significant aspect of like how the government works in the real world. And, and I do think it would be constructive at least for when judges talk about what's going on in interbranch conflict to distinguish between like – genuine conflict 
which happens sometimes, and like fake conflict, which which also happens sometimes. And I don't know exactly how that cuts in different issues, but like we know that's how it works, right? Like sometimes the executive branch is taking the lead on things because members of Congress want to duck the issue. And other times, right, like with um, DAPA, right, like Obama was doing something that congressional Republicans clearly did not want him to do. Mm -hmm. And like they said so, there was an election result, right? Like you could really say there that like for better or worse, what he was doing there was like taking action in defiance of Congress versus some of the earlier things he did. Like he was taking action because that's what Congress wanted him to do. So I think this brings up two things. So one is that if you look at recent you know, decades in, in the U.S. Senate, there are reasonably few periods where, let's say, seven senators could not control the agenda. I mean, right now we're in a period where two or three could control the entire agenda because John McCain is out and, and it's so closely divided. But but even if that's a particularly closely divided Senate, we're we're usually in a in a situation where a couple could do it. And you know, Matt, you're you're focusing on on moderates, but there are a lot of different coalitions of concern. There are criminal justice coalitions of concern. Rand Paul has said he's undecided on Brett Kavanaugh because he is concerned. I, I actually don't know why, but um, presumably he's concerned about- executive power. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, talking about surveillance, I think. Surveillance. So, so, and there are other senators who are concerned about things from a civil libertarian perspective, the way Paul is. You could have a lot of shifting coalitions coming up and down and then exerting a lot of leverage to get their things through. A great mystery of the Senate to me is why so few of these coalitions arise and actually try to do what they want to do. This is something I had on, on my interview podcast, Senator Michael Bennett, who's a Democrat from Colorado a while back. And we were talking about this for a long time. And I just kind of kept asking this question, like, well, why why don't five senators? Why, when I talk to all of you in your offices, do, do Republican and Democrat, do you endlessly complain about how terrible everything's? But then nobody uses the actual power they have to, to change it or to change outcomes or to change legislation. And the answer is there's not a great answer. I mean, parties have power, but they don't have that much power anymore. So party discipline doesn't make that much sense, except for, and this gets to the other point uh, that I want to make here on, on what Matt said. I think that one of the struts of our understanding of politics has been pretty heavily kicked out in the last couple of decades is that primarily the way people are allying with parties and then particularly the way uh, politicians are working is that they have some optimal vision of policy and that is their highest good and they pursue that and they ally with the party because their party will help them pursue that and on and on down the line. Even if that's a little bit true, overwhelmingly their view of how to be able to wield power is to win back power. And so there are very, 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 very few votes that they will not take with the one overriding question of does this make it more likely that we gain power in the the next election or win back the 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 chamber if we don't have it currently and so when you do that right you you completely restructure the the decision tree such that the first question is not like do i like this bill but the first question is what will my vote on this bill do to who controls the whole place next time because being in the minority sucks and nobody wants to do it and so I think that has actually become a, a different a different kind of weakness in the system because it just means that a lot of 
the fixes you might put into place, you know, sort of quote unquote fixes that would make it easier for for individual legislators to hold things up or to be able to demand consensus. It just really makes it easier for minority coalitions to to make everything work very badly. And by the way, Democrats would do this too. I mean, McConnell's been much more aggressive on it. But if you look at say filibustering over time, it's more intense among Republicans. But the trend, like Democrats, tend to be like three years behind Republicans on procedural innovations. But it's not a hundred years behind Republicans on procedural obstructionism. And so so these things really matter. The reason I wanted to talk about this paper is not because I think it has a way of fixing any of this. It very clearly doesn't. It's that I really think that for all that Matt might have learned this in 11th grade, the degree to which we still talk about American politics as if the branches constrain each other and as if party competition has not in quite fundamental ways corrupted the vision of the founders and the political system we live under is really flawed. We we really miss how far-reaching all this, how much it is broken. I mean, even you have all these uh, Republicans going on to the Supreme Court saying they're originalists who are, are, are trying to go by the, by the letter and the original intention of the founders, and they are being nominated for the Supreme Court because they are highly partisan members of a party being nominated by a powerful party in order to help achieve that party's objectives on the Supreme Court. Like, if you're an originalist, like, you yourself are, like, now a, a huge violation of the intent of the the founders. And this is something that original public meaning originalism is the new hotness. And I think that like this is actually where it gets interesting, right? It's like how would the people who engaged in the election of 1800 have thought of political competition? Were they really as high-minded about political competition sure, yes. as this whole account of what Madison is thinking when he writes the, you know? Right. Yes. Yeah. So that, that's all fair. Like what is in people's hearts and what it, human beings are complex. But I, I just think this is all much more broken. And, and the place where you see it is in things like the election security, Russia, you know, among other things, we have in a way we didn't used to, but but it's changed during uh, periods of American history. We've had long periods in American history where we quite rarely had divided government and long periods where we quite frequently had divided government. And right now, one of the things we're seeing is that in a period with unified government, you have very, very, very little underlying push for accountability, which means among other things, that the way the Constitution designed its features to ensure executive accountability, which, you know, Congress was the key player there, impeachment was a key remedy there, it doesn't really work. We've actually never had um, successful far-reaching impeachment proceedings underneath a unified government structure. Every impeachment proceeding that has gotten anywhere in American history has happened when the opposite party controlled the Congress. And so just like just absorbing the idea that we don't even have a government that can reliably ensure accountability of the president when that president's party controls Congress, like that's bad. And it's not bad because you shouldn't be able to have majority parties running things. I mean, that's how parliamentary democracies work. It's bad because it means our accountability mechanisms are are fucked up and too easy to politicize. So, I mean, I think the thing about this, like there there are insufficient Harry Potter references on this podcast and thinking about- You know, I would contest that. Yeah, (laughs) it's a generational difference. You know, thinking about what you said, there's there's a- a quote in which Molly Weasley tells her then 11-year-old daughter, like, what have I told you? Don't trust anything if you can't tell where it hides its brain. And, like, that's essentially this paper, right? Like, we have trust in the division, the tripartite structure of the federal government. We should not because the brain is actually not there. Like, these three things do not have independent brains. The brain is actually located in the parties, and the parties use the branches as tools. You've Fair. totally sold me on more Harry Potter references. There you go. Very Boom. Good. 
The question that raises for me is, okay, what is the party's brain? Where is the party's brain? Who is actually, like, if this is the agent in American politics, where does that agency come from? And, like, we have seen very substantial evidence that political parties as official institutions aren't as strong as people thought they were, right? Like, we've already rehashed on this podcast, so I don't need to, again, the kind of operating theory of 2016 that everybody had gotten on board with the political science idea that the party decided in primaries and then the party decided not to decide and Donald Trump got elected. But like, that's a very important point to make when we're saying that parties are the relevant denominator of power in American politics. We don't actually have a very good account of how political parties set their agenda and make their decisions. And when I say we, I don't just mean observers. I mean like the people within the system do not appear to have a very good account of who is making the decisions, which is a lot of why we see so much deference to Donald Trump, a person who like most members of Congress would tell you does not have a brain for policy. Like, that is not why he is in this game. And yet they are allowing him to make a lot of policy decisions because they kind of assume that he has the relevant agency. That may be true in a political sense. It may not be true. It may be a function of what I learned from the political scientist Julia Azari, but I know a lot of political scientists have talked about it as weak parties, strong partisanship, which is like the culture warification of party identity. But it doesn't really give us a satisfactory account of how decisions get made if the thing that is actually making the decisions is an entity that we don't actually know how its decisions are made. Right. And I wish that this paper had cleaved itself a little more clearly into what I think of as like two projects for constitutional reform in the United States. One is like what are ideas that we have to make things work better? Right. And in terms of this paper, I think most concretely their proposal is that when judges do rulings about interbranch conflict, they should follow the example of Robert Jackson's ruling in the Youngstown case and write cognizantly of parties, right, and not characterize what a Democratic Congress did 15 years ago versus what a Republican Congress is doing today as like Congress, but like Right as if they know that like there is a change and like regardless of how you rule that like that's why the case has arisen, right? So that's good. I don't know where it gets you but like I, I think that's correct. It, it's often strange reading these rulings and you're like, what is he talking about? You know, you're like clearly the judges know <laughs> that there's partisanship in America but they sometimes pretend there isn't. Another project is like what I think of as like message in a bottle, right? Like – in case the American political system goes into catastrophic failure mode and then we try to rebuild, do we do what happens in Argentina, which is every time there's a catastrophic failure, they just stitch it back together and they're like, let's give democracy another run, right? And then it falls apart again? Or do we try to put something different in its place? And I think there is a good suggestion embedded here, a suggestion I have made before, which is like, when the United States government had to rebuild democracy in Germany, they built a very different political system, one that like is now used in lots of countries, that works a lot better. And part of that, as Dara says, is there is a formal legal basis of the German political parties. So like you can ask who is the head of the Social Democratic Party? What authority does he have as the head of that party? Through what means would he be deposed as head of the party and replaced by somebody else, right? Right now we have these um, very powerful actors 
systems in American politics, but they don't like we don't understand how they work, but like also like they don't work in any particular way. Right. Like it's always changing. And there's like a field of study of like American political parties and the scholars in that field, you know, they disagree about things. But what they would all agree on is that it changes over time. And you need to write like really long books about like how the party system evolves, like which is fine. But it's odd to have bedrock elements of the constitutional system lack any kind of clear formal definition. Right. It's like can the institutional Republican Party like make a decision about American policy toward Russia? And like the answer is no, right? Like there's no meeting where you could hash that out. There's just like there's Trump and there's hawks in Congress and there's the programming decisions of Fox News and like something comes out of that and then you'll have to see, right? And like maybe the Supreme Court, which I think is very partisan, but it operates with a lag, right? Like Clarence Thomas is clearly a conservative Republican, but he was put on the bench in what was like a million years ago. And like, who knows what he thinks about completely novel issues. So that's not like a super practical model for reform, but like it is worth saying, like things go really badly wrong sometimes in countries. And like it, it's worth considering that if that does happen, like we should do something very different. Last though, I've come to think that it's like prestigious to think about deep structural causes, but that some of what's going on in America is just like a lack of individual initiative by people who happen to be in, you know, significant positions. And that at some points in American history, like people who have a lot of authority just like kind of go rogue and do their own thing. And it like happens to be the case that like centrist members of the U.S. Senate like have not acted in a particularly entrepreneurial way, but they could have and they might. So you're basically telling like Paul Ryan and Susan Collins to pull their pants up and take some personal responsibility? Well, I mean, if they want to. <laughs> I, I the mean, issue is that sometimes Congress can become like a hammock. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you as you recounted it well, like you could sit around with people and they'll be like, da, 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 da. And you can be like, well, why don't you? And like, a dozen four, other people who agree with that. Like, <laughs> why don't you do something about that? And I think I could give you a theory of why they don't, but it's not like a a theory of like why they don't fly to the moon. You know what I mean? It's like the staffers more so than the principals are very embedded in the party structures, mm -hmm. right? And like they switch from person to person. Like Michael Bennett's staff, right, is not primarily composed of guys from Colorado who are like specifically rooted in Michael Bennett's life trajectory or the electorate there. They're just like Democrats from wherever. And they constantly operate. And, and you see this really on the Republican side too. They keep the principles thinking in terms of party teamsmanship. And then people themselves that the senators are human beings. So they also like to think in terms of teams, especially when everyone who works for them encourages them to do that. But every once in a while, like people transcend this, right? Like Jim Jeffords in 2001 mm -hmm. over the, in retrospect, incredibly petty issue of subsidized Vermont dairy production, <laughs> just like knocked all the pieces off the chessboard, switched parties and went from not just being a moderate Republican, he became a very left-wing Democrat. Or John McCain walked out on the Senate floor and like in the mo like right. the yes. single most dramatic thing I've basically happened, seen happen on the floor of the Senate, just like turned his thumb down unexpectedly right, and destroyed right. Obamacare right. appeal. And so you ask, and like, why did John do McCain things. do that rather than act in concert 
with a handful of moderate Democrats to like reshape the structure of the Senate. And like the answer is that John McCain personally is like very much a maverick, but he's like an impulsive guy, not an institution building guy. But then there's so, like, the he question did... of like John McCain having done that and not been struck by either Lightning right. or Mitch McConnell. Right. Why didn't Jeff Flake then go out and turn the just you know the thumb down on tax reform when it got clear that he'd been rolled? And, and it may be that you know these folks like look at not John McCain but but Jeff Flake and and others who you know there's been some talk Flake is look, looking for a television show right that, yeah. that there's some things that, that you need to be preserving for yourself you know Matt and I often have the sort of structuralist versus individualist um, arguments I remember um, we actually did a public event years ago where like I gave some riff on why I thought American politics was broken and it's like. Yeah, but Ezra's a nice guy and is not saying that all these people are just being immoral individually. And, and I think there's something to that, to, to, to the point Matt's making. I'm a very big believer in a bad system will defeat a good person most times. Um, you know, I think if the system is incentivizing people to do the wrong things, overwhelmingly people do the wrong things. And the cases where people stand up against that are both very, very important and very laudable and also quite rare. But – the Senate to me and, – and this goes to your point about John McCain not being struck by lightning. It isn't quite that system. Like it isn't so clear that you can't survive as a real maverick. In fact, like for a long time, John McCain became one of America's most popular politicians by doing mavericky things. And clearly that mantle is up for someone to take it, up for a bunch of people to take it. And you've seen this a bunch of different times happening. My sense talking to people from, from my reporting is that the two sides are held in place by their loathing of the other side. That when you really get down to brass tacks, the reason they don't do this kind of thing and just stop everything is that the, the, the argument that works with them is, yeah, but remember when they did this to us? And then it's like there's this constant both like retroactive and prospective escalation and retaliation happening in Congress that, that really is important to the psychological dynamics of the people in it. But again, why Lamar Alexander and Michael Bennett and, you know, you name four others, um, there, there are these Susan Collins, like there are these folks in there who you talk to them and they really don't like the way it's going and they do not stop it. And I don't think there's a good answer. I, I don't think this is one where the system has such powerful modes of retaliation that I don't even think it would be unpopular. It's just – it's very, very, very unclear to me. So I've been, I've been reading lately about Theodore Roosevelt. This was a guy who, you know, really like scrambled the, the pieces on the chessboard and, and sort of undid a very polarized party system. And an interesting fact about him, right, is that the super polarized Gilded Age parties came out of the Civil War in which, you know, exactly as Ezra was saying, right, anytime somebody would say like maybe we should – people are like, remember the time the Democrats tried to literally destroy the country? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, right, remember when the Republicans <laughs> sent a giant army and burned down your brother's house? So it was like – very bitter. And when eventually the torch of political leadership passed to guys like Roosevelt who were little kids during the Civil War, like individual ambition, like maybe I could become president <laughs> if I did some crazy popular stuff and like I could master the system, like started to rise above it, right? And Donald Trump at times seems like that kind of figure. Right, like somebody who was not invested in the particular partisan disputes of the Bush era, right? Who was just like, well, do something else, right? And like Republicans don't want me to do this. Like I'm just going to go. I'm going to speak to the people. I'm going to go on TV. But then he personally, he has the 
gumption to like scramble partisan alignments and to not do what you're supposed to do. But he just does not have the intellectual capacity to like follow through, right? And, or it's just and not, accomplish anything. Or it's just not in his interest because Theodore Roosevelt was like one of the youngest, I mean, the youngest ex-president, which is trivia that I know for reasons I will not go into on this podcast. Um, but was it because you were on Jeopardy? It was. Oh, this. Yeah, this is this is why I lost. Um, but you lost on oh, that no. question. Yeah, yeah. It it was it was like a decade ago, guys. I don't really want to talk about it. <laughs> no. um, but the point is that like Theodore Roosevelt also was operating in a system that hadn't yet passed presidential term limits. So like the theory by which he was going to do this early in his career and then continue to steer a ship of if not state, then at least a political party for like decades was viable, whereas Donald Trump is like 70. He's going to like be president and that's probably the last major thing he's going to do with his life. It's not clear that there's any benefit for him in trying to do anything that's going to last after he's gone rather than just kind of like ride the gilded ship of state into port. Can can I ask one final question of you all to, to end the podcast? Is, is it going to be about Jeopardy? No, it's not going to be about the all Jeopardy. Right. I have not read a good book on Theodore Roosevelt. Would either of you have one to recommend? Is there a biography either of you prefer on Roosevelt? I have not read any Roosevelt biographies. I am just tainted by rage. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. A Strenuous Life is excellent. I just finished it. Okay. I should phrase it. What is A Strenuous Life? (laughs) I hate you. I hate you both. That's Uh, the weeds. (laughs) What is the weeds? Thanks, guys. Thanks uh, to Alex Trebek. uh, (laughs) To our our producer, Bridget Armstrong, our engineer, Griffin Tanner. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to all of you out there for for listening. Uh, If you can pose any uh, questions in the form of answers in the Weeds Facebook group, uh, you know, we would, of course, If you pose questions in the form of answers and we don't understand them as questions, that is not our fault. Listen, it's a difficult You guys have done a public event, right? All questions are formed in the the, (laughs) frame of answers. Okay, so this is more of a comment, than a, <laughs> but I'm going to add a question mark at the end of it. And, uh, you know, while you're uh, watching Jeopardy, uh, keep in mind that The Weeds has been nominated for this year's People's Choice Podcast Awards. You can vote for The Weeds for free by going to podcastawards.com or by tapping the link in the show notes. Voting ends Tuesday, July 31st. So do not wait. Go to podcastawards.com right now to cast your vote for The Weeds, and we will be back on Friday. 